Okay, now turn over to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, we're continuing where we left off, working through verses 28 to 33. The husband, the biblical responsibility of the husband to his wife. And as I explained last week, Paul is, Paul is explaining to husbands and wives how they as Christians ought to conduct themselves in marriage. I mean, th- th- this is their context. This is how they as Christians, how they are to walk worthy of their calling with, with reference, with regards to being a husband or being a wife. And so if, if you have a concern as a, as a man, as a husband or as a young man who, will want, who, who intends to one day be a husband, this is why you are here today, my young sirs. This is why you are here. This is why you are listening alongside mom and dad to the word of God being opened so that you might have a biblical understanding of what your call and your role and your responsibility to marriage will be when you are a husband and as a husband those of you who are husbands this is why you are here today so that you likewise might be confronted with what the scripture says you and i ought to be and by god's grace he'll he'll shape us into into that standard bit by bit so the the chief responsibility for a husband is that he loves his wife there's anything else he is to do, he is to love his wife. And as we started to get into last week, that's a comprehensive statement. Paul explained, or he began to elaborate, that this love, it is to express itself in sacrifice. A husband is to have a sacrificing love for his wife. And then a sanctifying love. And as we'll see today, a self-styled love and a separating love. Just, just so that we, we get the context again, let's, let's, read, let's read what Paul writes. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present himself that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Okay, this is there we go. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. 
Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So, there's a couple of you who weren't here last week. Let me just, uh, for your benefit, let me just recap what we said. A husband is to have a sacrificing love based on verse 25. Husbands, you are to love your wife with a love that gives to her. Your love should contribute to her. It should serve her. In love, you should be building her up. You should be adding to her spiritual walk. You should be adding to her contentment. You should be providing for her material needs as well as her emotional needs. Husbands are to sacrificially love their wives to the uttermost in an imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ who loved his church to the uttermost and gave himself for her and laid down his life so that she might be redeemed. As Christ Jesus held nothing back, placed nothing in reserve for himself, And in every way gave his all for his church. The husband is to give his all in love, without reservation, cheerfully and sacrificially. He is to give himself for his wife. Secondly, his love is to be a sanctifying love. Verses 26 to 27. His, His love is to have a sanctifying effect on her. A husband loving his wife and pouring out his love upon her, for her, uh, uh, his love for her, motivating and spurring him to make discerning and careful choices about his day, his time that is spent on her, his energy that that is exerted for her behalf, all of this ought to have some positive spiritual influence upon her upon her godliness, upon her holiness, upon her walk. Christ died for the church so that his church might be directly impacted, so that his church might be changed. Christ gave himself so that his church might be influenced and led and moved away from sin, away from worldliness and towards holiness and godliness. And it is an imitation of that to take the example of Christ and to exhibit that kind of love for his church, that a husband loves his wife and understands that he is called to be more than a mere breadwinner, more than a mere financial provider. He is called to be a consistent faithful, positive, contributing presence in his wife's spiritual growth. And so he prays for his wife. He encourages his wife. He talks to her about spiritual things. Together they talk about sin and repentance and the majesty of God and the beauty of his grace and the sweet solace of his forgiveness and the anchor and the hope that they both have in the Lord's inheritance and in the life to come. 
And not only does he directly encourage his wife in these matters, but he leads by example so that his own walk and his own prayer life and his own daily pattern of feeding and nourishing himself by the scriptures and humbly repenting when he sins. He he leads by example in these things so that his example would not stumble his wife, but rather sanctify her. And I want to add this. I didn't say this last week. But because men, we need to hear this. And quite frankly, I don't think any wife in here is going to complain if I give you some more, more marching orders along these lines. We need to hear this. We need to apply this. One way we sanctify our wives and assist them in their responsibility to submit to us and to humbly follow our leadership, one way we help them learn and to be motivated not to undermine us or to grumble against us, we lead by example in humbly and patiently submitting to the authorities placed over ourselves. What we, what we are calling them, or rather what Scripture is calling them to do, we do ourselves in the context of an authority, where an authority has been placed over us. Where might this happen? Well, rather than grumble and complain about a president that we don't like being appointed into office, we, we heed 1 Timothy 2, verse 2, and we make entreaties and prayers and petitions for our president. Rather than grumble and complain to our wives about our boss and gossiping to our wives about how lousy we, uh, how much of a louse he is and how how lousy we have it at work and how miserable uh, he makes Monday through Friday for us. Rather than gossip and complain and grumble and mumble, we speak well of our employers or If we can't say anything positive, we just remain silent. We exemplify the attitudes Paul has discussed in chapters 4 and 5. We lay aside falsehood. We speak truth in love. We don't sin in our anger. We work diligently with honesty, with integrity. We speak wholesome words rather than filth and garbage. We speak things that are... We try to be as constructive as we can be with our words, with our mouth, with our speech. We endeavor to build up as much as we can rather than tear down. And instead of becoming bitter and angry and slandering those who tick us off, and know how to step on just the right nerve. We endeavor to be kind and tender-hearted, and we readily forgive. And we readily practice grace. And we readily walk in love. All of these things which we as husbands would hope that our wives might do unto us, we do before them that that we might help foster godliness and not worldliness in the home or in the marriage. 
And so to help illustrate what a husband's love for his wife is supposed to look like, Paul has first taken us to the supreme example of Jesus Christ. And he says, husbands, love your wives the way that Christ has loved you, the way Christ loves you. Love your wives like he does towards you. And there's another illustration, this one very practical and very immediate. It's immediately relatable that Paul takes us to, and that's the love that men have for themselves, for their own bodies. Point three, Paul, Paul says that a, a husband's love for his wife is to be a self-styled love. He says, so husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Whoever has to remind a man to eat when he's hungry? Who has to remind a man to sleep when he's tired? And I, I understand there are some workaholics out there, but y'all are weird. No one needs to remind you or compel you or push you to drink when your lips are chapped and your tongue is cemented to, your root, to the roof of your mouth because it's drier than the Sahara in there. God has designed our bodies to let us know what they need. And if we're being honest, we are quite keen on responding to those needs when our body tells us something is up. If you stub your toe, if you cut your finger, there is an automatic response. I mean, you don't even, you don't even think about it. It's just instinctual. You, you cradle it, you shelter it, and you do what you can to protect it and nurture it back to health. It, 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 you just do it. It's automatic. It's reflexive. And you, you, just, you just do it without thinking. And do you know how to respond to what your bodies are telling you. I mean, if some, something could, could be flying at your face, you instinctively cover your face, or if you're among the more agile and nimble, you might dodge. We're so in sync with our bodies that we naturally do what our bodies call us to do. Now, that, can, that kind of response, that kind of, Immediate response to an impulse is the very thing that needs to be reciprocated towards our wives in marriage. Paul says, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. And yes, on the, on the fringe and the extremes, there are some people who do a, a lot of kind of awful, strange, debased things to themselves, but we readily admit that that is not normal. Normal proclivity, the normal tendency, the normal inclination is that men tend to tend to the needs of their bodies rather than cause harm, rather than exacerbate harm and damage to themselves. And that proclivity, that self-servingness or self Interest, self-preservation is something Scripture has already appealed to in directing the people of God how to conduct themselves, uh, shall we say, uh, horizontally. Did I get that right? No, this is, yeah, 
Scripture has already appealed to this, this naturally occurring phenomenon in telling us how to relate socially with one another. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew twenty two thirty nine. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And after saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength and mind, he says, he, he is quick to add a second one. And he says, it is like it, it is like the first. And then he cites that passage from Leviticus. To love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says that the law and the prophets hang on both of these in tandem. He says in Mark 12:21 that there is no greater commandment than these. Paul in Romans 13:9 after after reciting thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. He says, if there's anything else that I, that I, that I forget to mention, that, I've, that I, I'm not thinking of bringing up, if, if you and your creativity can think of any other thing, he says, it's summed up in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says in Galatians 5.14 that the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why do I cite all these different places where this scripture is, is cited? I want you to see that scripture pr- makes a presumption. It, it is bringing an assumption to the table. And it's not, it's not arguing it. It's just de- it's asserting it as fact. And it's this. Men already love themselves. They've got that part down pat. Men love themselves. And for some strange reason that I I don't understand, psychologists will often say, you know, in in response to uh, there being social issues and relational issues, you need to learn to love yourself so that you can love so-and-so. Well, Scripture has already says has already said you love yourself, and the problem is actually that you love yourself too much. You need to learn how to. We need to learn how to love ourselves less than we do. We are already quite adept at loving self. We are we are very skilled, very good at responding to self needs. We are already zeroed in to the wants and needs of self. We already love ourselves. And what we need to do, what we need to work on, where we need growth is taking that devotion and that consistency and that impulse to love self and we need to redirect it and apply it elsewhere. We need to love others as we would want them to, in the, in the manner and in the ways that we would want them to love us. Put another way, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Now, nowhere more should, should, should that channel of, of loving others and putting another person before self 
Nowhere should that channel of love be so bright, so brilliant, so focused, so pure, so honed and exhibited than in the loving care and affection and passion that a, hus- that a Christian husband has for his wife. I mean, generally speaking, a Christian man should, should love others and place them above himself. We, we've examined that in recent passages. Paul makes that clear in Philippians 2. But nowhere more so than in the Christian marriage and in, a, in the love that a Christian husband has for his wife should this be concentrated, should this be undiluted, consistent, pure, relentless. Husbands, love your wives, wife the way that you already love yourself. And the husband who fulfills the will of God in his life is the husband whose, whose love for his wife serves to, to have her nourished and cherished. Look, look, at, look at the word that the words, Paul's vocabulary that he uses in verse 29. This is what man already does for himself. He already nourishes and cherishes his own body. And in turn, what he needs to do is he needs to now channel that nourishing and cherishing towards his wife. Let's look at these words. To nourish, to nourish is to give what is needed for growth. To give what is needed for growth, for development, for advancement, for strengthening. And when our bodies tell us we're hungry, we respond and we nourish it. Huge industries center around things that are labeled nourishment and Bethany here will be the first to tell you that not everything labeled as nourishment is nourishing, but that's beside the point. It's a massive industry. Billions upon billions of dollars center around the, 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 the movement and the development and the purchasing and the selling of nourishment. That should tell us that it is, it is a priority. It is important. It is critical. It is a readily seen phenomenon that men will nourish themselves. And unless it's for a specific reason, maybe, maybe a man is fasting for medical reasons or spiritual reasons. Uh, unless he is intentionally fasting and, or unless something is keeping him from doing so, such as pa- famine, such as poverty, or perhaps his own um, choices with his finances, unless something is keeping him from it, and unless he is deliberately choosing to abstain from food, men naturally, daily, nourish themselves. Cherish. Cherish. I, I, I like this. I'm, some of you know I'm a, I'm a little more on the sentimental side. Cherish means, it, it speaks of warmth and comfort and the root word uh, has the idea of keeping close so as, to, uh, so as to provide warmth and comfort. And it was used to describe a mother bird nesting over her young and keeping them warm. And it's just all go, oh, 
I like that word. When you're cold, men, well, maybe not all of us, normal men, when they're cold, they reach for a jacket to comfort their body. Some of us are stubborn, I guess, but if you cut yourself, if you injure yourself, you instantly cradle that wound. Just, just this week, I have a Cutco cheese knife, which is sharper than a, it, it is, it cuts better than a lightsaber. And it was just so attunely placed in the drawer so that the blade was up. And I, I'm cooking something, and I was reaching over for something, and my body knew before my mind knew that something happened that ought not to have happened. And instinctively, it went to my mouth, and I was mm, just holding it. And Jennifer was very good about getting a bandage and everything and wiping away my tears and holding me and everything. When, when we are injured, when we do something like that, we, we just naturally, instantaneously, immediately cradle the injury and we do what we can to minimize the pain and ideally prevent further injury. We do something in a particularly hazardous way, such as, I don't know, chopping wood and flip-flops. And you get hurt in the process, which I might have done likewise. This has been a rough week, by the way. You know, if something like that happens and you get hurt, you learn, you tell yourself, I'm not going to do that again. And if you do, then you deserve what happens. But you, 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 you learn, you adapt. Why? Because you cherish your body. You don't want it to become harmed or damaged. We are attuned to its impulses and needs and we're readily aware and immediately responsive to when it tells us things. And we do what we can to take care of it. Just as you nourish and you cherish yourself, your own flesh, in the same way as you take care of yourself, Jesus Christ does the same for you as well. He extends the same compassionate, provisionary, diligent, responsive, concerning care that you extend to yourself. And He does for you, He loves you in the way that you would hope, you would wish that others would have towards you. He continually cares for your needs. Matthew 6.26 tells us that if God sees to it that the little birds are fed daily, won't He feed you, O you of little faith, knowing that you are much more valuable than little birds? Verse 30, if God sees to it that the flowers of the field are so clothed as they are, and those, those are the things that are used for kindling at the end of the day, will he not more clothe you, oh, you of little faith? Don't you know that God cares for your needs? James 1.17 says that every good thing given and every perfect gift comes from the sweat of your brow. No, it comes from above. Any, any and every good thing you have, you have because a good and a gracious and a provisionary God has given it to you. The Lord Jesus continues to love you 
His ear is always open to your prayer. He never neglects you. He never turns you away because he's too busy for you or he's irritated by you. Although some of us would give him reason to be. I do. He never loses his temper with us. He is always sympathetic. He is always compassionate, always tender, always kind, always patient, always loving, and always working together all things for our good. Even if and when we don't have the providence, the occasion, or the maturity to see it. Even just because you don't see or or perhaps experientially are aware of his love for you doesn't mean that Jesus is not lovingly caring for you and nourishing and cherishing you because he is. And seeing the way that Christ loves his church, seeing the way that Christ Jesus loves you, that's supposed to shape and influence you husbands. It is supposed to shape and influence the way you love your wives. How then can any man, when he is confronted with his sin, with his carnality, with his worldliness, say in response, well, that's just the way I am. How can any man say that? How can any man say, that's just the way I am. She's just going to have to accept it. She needs to get over it. She needs to live with it because I'm not going to change. I'm just not like that. And I'm not going to be. How can a man say that? And when a man says something like that to a passage like this, my, my, my impulse reaction or, or, or a, a impulse question is, is, what other passages of Scripture does he respond to like that? never good to pick and choose what what portions of scripture we will be obedient to and which we are not but how let me let me go back to my question and then try to answer it how could a man say something like that he says it because he has a hard heart because he is stubborn because he loves his sin and he loves his self too much and so Gentlemen, if, if, if this is speaking to any one of you, you need to repent. If you are not loving your wife in some manner as Christ loves His church, and in some manner uh, to which you love yourself, you need to repent. And maybe, maybe you put on a great show. Maybe you think you, you hide your your negligence or your um, uh, lack of gentleness and, t- and tenderness for your wife, and nobody knows, but the truth is God knows. And eventually, other people will know. God has a way of, of bringing things that are said on the, uh, uh, in the corners and in the back alleys, things that are said in secret. He has a way of, of keeping things that we would prefer to keep hidden to light. And things like this are often more known than one might realize. And so if this is you, repent and start loving your wife as you ought to.
So men, look at these two pictures. Two pictures. In, In one, you have the nourishing, cherishing love that you instinctually give to yourself. Right? No, nobody has to train you how to do that. You just do it already. And in the other, you have the nourishing, cherishing love of the Savior who gave him his life for you and to this day, as, as well as forevermore, loves you and is faithful and tender and gracious and sympathetic towards you. As you love yourself and as Christ loves you, you, likewise, go and love your wife. And the fact that it's in the present tense should tell us, Paul is not just saying, you go and love your wife today, on Sunday, October 3rd, and then what you do tomorrow is, is that's between you and God. No, you, present tense. This should be your pattern. This should, your love for your wife should mark your life. As you love yourself and as Christ Jesus loves you, you likewise love your wife and stop giving her the bare minimum that is needed to maintain a socially standardized marriage. Love her. Be tender to her. Be patient with her. Converse with her. Romance her. Make time for her. Engage with her. Date her. Be courteous with her. Open the door for her. Respect her publicly and speak well of her in front of others. And show others through word and gesture, that, she, that that woman is your whole world. Rejoice in her and don't make excuses about being too busy. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 13, or, or scroll up. I just want to do a little exercise. My timer says I have time for this. 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 13 and I want, for each of these qualities, I want to ask the question, and if I had, if I had a, uh, a marker, you know, I, I, would, I would put, you know, does, and then insert your name here, do this too, and then put in the name of your wife. So ask yourself, do I do this for my wife? Verse 4. Love is patient. Am I patient to my wife? And, and, and these are all things we, 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 we would want others to do, to exercise these things towards us, right? Right? So let's do this for our wives. Are we patient with our wives? Are we kind with our wives? Are we not jealous? Are, are we easily provoked by the successes that they have? Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Am I those things for my wife? Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It doesn't, mark this, 
It does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love is gracious. Love forgives. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. That would be a wonderful passage just to embed into your noggins, gentlemen. Are we doing those things? Are we exhibiting those qualities to our wives? Not as an exception, but as a pattern to our lives. Now, if I go horribly over, then that little excursion, I think, was worth it. A husband's love for his wife is to be sacrificial. It is to be sanctifying. It is to be self-styled. And then lastly, a husband's love for his wife is to be a separating love. A separating love. And by by this, I mean... That he, that he is to love her, uh, a, a, a Christian husband is to love his wife with a love that puts her in a class of her own. It sets her apart. It, it makes her unique. She is to be loved with an exclusionary love. It is to be exercised upon her, towards her, and nobody else. And she is to be loved in such a way that she stands apart from all other women. This love and affection of a Christian husband for his wife makes her unique because it is unique. His affection, devotion, his tenderness, his passion for her charm that she invokes in him, the smile that she puts on his face, the way that she lights up his eyes, the way that she makes him thank God that she was given to him, that that should be a, a very exclusive thing. It is a separating love, and she is to be his and his alone. Let's read verse 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Notice that in in marriage, that the primary relationship for a man undergoes a very critical change. There is a leaving and there is a cleaving A man leaves his parents, which since conception, that's been the primary relationship that he has. And he is joined to his wife. Now, this this word to be joined, to to, to join, speaks of two things sticking together because they, they, they have been, they've been fitted together, pitted together, or they've been otherwise bound together with string or even glued. There, there is an adhesion between the two parts so that uh, now there is effectively 
effectively and functionally, not two parts that just happen to be circumstantially in in, uh, proximity to each other, but there is rather one whole. I feel like I'm talking a lot about myself this week, uh, or you're learning some things about me. I like to model. And there is this really neat thing that I found called cement, uh, plastic cement. And when, when I'm, you know, putting my little tanks and stuff together, this stuff actually melts the plastic so that you don't have two parts that are just merely sticking to each other. The plastic actually fuses. And so at, in the, the final uh, uh, product is a single whole. If you try to break it apart, the seam where the two pieces come together is no longer a seam. It's fused. I think that's a great, you know, Paul had no idea what plastic cement was, but I think that's a nifty illustration. There is, there is such a strong, there is such an organic adhesion between the two that it's it's like a fusion it's like you're welded together and it's a union it's a it's a being it's a fitting together it's a joining that is not easily or painlessly separated it's not meant to come apart it's meant to be brought together and stay together for life In marriage, two parts come together and form one new whole. And in that, within this one whole, within this one flesh relationship, that interpersonal relationship between the two parts becomes the primary concern and priority for both. And this means that the the priority concern, the the, the priority for a husband is for his wife. And the primary concern and the priority that a wife has is for her husband. Both are to be fully committed. Both are to be fully devoted to each other. And no one is permitted or allowed to interfere or to jeopardize that union. And so what this means is that parents are no longer the primary relationship for either spouse. They, they take a back seat. And this doesn't mean that an adult man or an adult woman who is now in marriage and joined to their spouse, it doesn't mean that they dishonor or disrespect his or her parents or his or her in-laws. This, this isn't uh, creating a license for dishonor and disrespect But what happens is it needs to be established. It needs to be clearly understood and I'd say gently made known that the primary responsibility is now towards one's spouse. This, this This kind of threat can also, this threat to the harmony of the union between a husband and wife can also come from children. Children must not ever become the primary relationship or the primary focus for either spouse. And as I said with the parents, this this isn't a license 
for negligence or sin. This doesn't mean that the husband or the wife, or rather the mother or the father, ignore or mistreat their children. But it it, it needs to be understood. You must see that children are never uh, uh, compared or likened to the relationship that you have with your spouse. What is said between husband and wife, what, what Scripture says happens between husband and wife, does not happen with any other relationship. It's unique and exclusive. You are, you are one with your spouse. You are joined. You have been joined to your spouse. You have not been joined to any other earthly relationship in the way that you have been joined to your spouse. And so this means that no one is to be allowed to drive a wedge between a husband and a wife. And this happens all the time. Sometimes overtly, sometimes subvertly. And sometimes this this comes from in-laws. Sometimes it's the kids. Sometimes it's from people outside the family, uh, within the church family. Sometimes it's friends. We see situations where someone outside the one flesh union tries to pit the husband or the wife apart from each other, against each other. The term for this is called triangulation. The husband and wife are rather to, together, in in unison as a team, refuse such an intrusion. No other relationship, no, no opportunity to get something or to do something should be allowed to undermine the loving partnership and the, the functioning adhesion of the two parts which now constitute one whole. And men, listen, listen. Don't invite triangulation. Don't create an opening for a wedge by speaking poorly of your wife before others. Don't ask, don't, don't give others the opportunity to do something like this by talking down to her or belittling her in public. Be very, if you are ever going to say something which could be perceived as critical or, or as a complaint or as a grievance against your wife, be very discerning, be very careful about who and what, about who you say it to and what you say. And if anything, err on the side of grace. Speak about your wife graciously. To do otherwise, to become careless with your words, to wear your heart on your sleeve, as it were, creates a visible weak point in your marriage and it creates a vulnerability that opportunists will try to seize. Instead, present a unified front to others, to your in-laws, to your parents, and to your children. Present a unified front and save your problem-solving discussions with your spouse for private. While both parts ought to love each other like this, I just want you to see verse 33. It is the men who are commanded to do this. Uh, both sides should, should lovingly submit the, uh, uh, 
lovingly sub- submit themselves to one another. Both sides should be humble. Both sides should be selfless. But I want you to see it is the men who are commanded by the authority of Scripture, by the authority of Christ, men are commanded to love their wives this way. Verse 33. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, as I close, uh, I, I, I wanted to give a warning to the single young men out there. Uh, I'm thinking of one in particular who I, ho- I trust is live streaming. But you know what? As I look around, we have a number of young men in, in here who will one day be young, single adult men who will one day become, uh, I'm sure to their parents' delight, young adult married men. And so let me, let me give this charge to, uh, to the of-age young men who are listening as well as to the parents. So I, I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to serve both groups here. I guess since most of uh, parents are the mostly in here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to phrase my words to you. Teach your kids, teach your young men, who will be uh, your boys who will one day be young single men who will consider marriage. Teach them to be mindful and discerning who they are going to marry. Teach them that this is not a decision to be made lightly. Teach them the seriousness and the sobriety that is appropriate for entering into that kind of covenant and teach, teach them that this will be to love their wives like Jesus Christ loves his beloved church. That will be the standard for the way they love their wives. Teach them that. Don't let, that should not be a surprise for any young man. Teach them that their biblical expectation is that to the woman he takes to the altar for the rest of their lives, he will love her sacrificially. He will love her in a sanctifying way. He will love her as he loves himself. And he will love her in an exclusive way such that he won't allow that relationship to be threatened or undermined by any other person. Teach your young men, your boys, teach them that before they make their vows, before they make their commitment, teach them to, to show discernment and to ask, is this a woman someone is this woman someone that I can give myself for sacrificially? Is this someone that I can effectively lead in godliness and, and holiness and growth? Is this someone who will respond to my efforts to lead and to protect her in spiritual matters? Or will she be difficult to lead? Will she be difficult to shepherd? Is she teachable? Or is she stubborn? Is she proud or humble? As your young men turn in, uh, grow into dating age, teach them to ask of their prospective someday partners, what are their parents like? And how does this young lady treat her parents? Does she honor her parents or does she complain about her parents? Because if she complains about her parents now, in all likelihood, one day she'll be complaining about you. 
Is she respectful or is she ugly towards them? Is she the same person when she's around them as she is when she's not? And, and for that matter, since I brought par- the, 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 the soon-to-be in-laws into this, what are her parents like? Are they the kind of, teach your boys to ask themselves, are these in-laws the kind of in-laws I want to have? Will they respect my rightful place as her chief concern when she ceases to be their little girl and she becomes my wife? Teach your boys, teach your boys that there are considerations to be had beyond the external beauty and the attractiveness because of womanly features. Teach your boys that Luke 14.28 says that a wise man first sits down and he calculates the cost of a tower before he, starts, before he commits himself to building it, lest he be found a fool because he was not able to complete what he began. Teach your boys the seriousness behind that, behind that moment when they take a woman to be their lawfully wedded, wedded wife. Let's pray. Lord, this is indeed a a lofty standard. We are to, the husbands in this room are called to love our wives like you love us. And I'll be the first to admit I, I, I fail and I fall very short. that I have sinned against my wife and Lord I thank you that you have washed away my sin my sin made me an enemy my sin made me opposed to you and to what you would have me be and to what you would have me do and yet you took my sin upon yourself, you bore it, you paid for it, and you put it away so that it could no longer be held against me. And rather than being an enemy, rather than being your foe, by your forgiveness and by your work on my behalf, I've been brought to your table as a friend. And that is true of every Christian here today who believes in you and trusts in you for the forgiveness of their sins, and for the hope of eternal life. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you have done for sinners like us. Let us respond to this great truth, to this great calling, and to this great hope and profession by loving our wives more fervently and more passionately than we've ever done. Lord, I lift my arms around this blessed congregation. I pray that you would protect every, every family, help every husband to love their wife as they ought to, help every wife to trust her husband's leadership and submit to him as she ought to. And may you be glorified by what happens. Amen.